0: All right, let's pray together, and as we do so, let's begin with these words from Isaiah 33. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he shall be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Father, we live in very unstable times, We live in times where not only is nature seeming to run amok, but wars and rumors of wars are coming from every corner of the globe. And Father, we know that uh, the time is near for the return of your son. And we look forward to that. But Father, we want to be found doing your will when that moment comes. So Father, I pray you'll keep us faithful. I'm grateful for these men and women in the room, for their dedication to you, to your word for their love for the service, and Father, for the commitment uh, of so many to foreign missions, whether going, or praying, or giving, or sending children, whatever it might be. And Lord, help us to constantly sense that we are part of that work through our prayers and through our concern in other ways that you might enable. And many have even gone on short-term missions to, to help in some way. We're grateful for what it is, Lord, you have done through many people in this class and through all of us in one way or another. And Father, I pray that you will bless us now today, that your word will speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask that wherever your word is proclaimed this day, that you will empower it, that the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven will advance and the kingdom of darkness will be forced into retreat. As the scripture tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so may there be a great advance this day in our hearts, in this city and around the world, as you do your great work, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read from Judges chapter six, beginning at verse one. Judges chapter six, beginning at verse one. that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel, because of Midian the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens, which were in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown, that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east, and go against them. So they would camp against them, and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey." For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Whereas in our study so far we have seen that the accounts of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, were all condensed into a single chapter. And the story of Deborah and Barak encompassed two chapters. We are now coming to the story of the fifth of the Judges, Gideon, and his story encompasses three chapters of the book of Judges. After the death of both Deborah and Barak, Israel was again seduced to chase after the gods of the Amorites. What else is new, huh? in order to awaken his people uh, to their folly and to draw them back to, to what they in, their, in the depths of their hearts knew was the true faith. God allowed the Midianites to oppress Israel for seven years. Now, as we'll see, it's, it's hard for us to imagine how, how denigrating that was to Israel. I mean, it isn't just that there's an oppressor. These oppressors are Midianites. And that has a special meaning to Israel. It's a very negative meaning, of course. As we noted last Sunday, the Midianites were distant cousins of Israel. The Midian had been born to Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. You remember when Abraham was old and Sarai was dead, Sarah was dead and, and uh, Israel and uh, Isaac, not Israel, Isaac and uh, Ishmael uh, were grown up that uh, <clears throat> Abraham got married again and uh, had four, six, six sons by his uh, new wife. One of them was Midian. I'm sure had he, of course, God controls history. But if Abraham could have looked ahead and seen that one of his new sons is going to oppress, uh, oppress Israel, he'd have said, forget it, I'm not getting married again. But he couldn't see ahead. We were also reminded that during the time that Israel was preparing to launch their invasion of Canaan and they were camped over there in the plains of Moab, that the Midianites purposely endeavored to lure Israel into the worship of Baal of Peor. Again, reminding you that Baal is a kind of a generic name. It applies to many different versions of pagan gods, almost in every instance a fertility god, often depicted in the form of a bull. Because the bull throughout ancient society was the primary symbol of strength and virility. And so usually the bull was the symbol of these uh, male fertility gods. And sometimes the cow was the, female of, uh, was, was the symbol of the female fertility god, whatever uh, that might be. Because of their role, the role of the Midianites in seducing Israel to sin against God's commandments, God had instructed Israel back at that time to take vengeance on the Midianites. And I'd like to for us to go back to the book of Numbers for a moment, into the 31st chapter. We touched on this, of course, but it's been a while back, like years, a couple maybe. In 31st chapter of Numbers, beginning at verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. And Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. And a thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels and the trumpet for the alarm in his hand. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. And they, and, and they killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Recham, and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword." And the sons of Moses captured the women of Midian and their little ones, and all their cattle, and all their flocks, and all their goods they plundered. Then they burned all their cities where they lived, and all their camps with fire, and they took all the spoil and all the prey, both of man and of beast. So they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the sons of Israel, to the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho." So Israel's had a long relationship with Midian, and it's been a negative relationship uh, all along. The only sort of friendly relationship was uh, the fact that Moses married into a family that was related to Midian in the general sense of the word, at least was living in what was called the land of Midian. But whenever the Israelites encountered the Midianites, it was not a friendly encounter. Obviously, in spite of this slaughter, some of the Midianites escaped. And now, we're looking at 200 years later, they have multiplied, and they have become Israel's oppressors by the allowance of God. And that's got to be underscored and double underscored. Midian could never have oppressed Israel if it hadn't been for the allowance of God. And God would never have allowed it had Israel been walking in obedience. So severe was the Midianite domination that we see here that the Israelites were living in the countryside. Some of them apparently were living in houses, as we'll see in the case of Gideon. But most of them were living out in caves and dens and, and holes in the rocks just to get away from the rapacious Midianites, to hide from them. It was tragic to see how far the people of God had sunken in their spiritual depravity. How far had the mighty fallen, you know? The people that had conquered the, Midi- uh, the the Canaanites, the people who had been given this great land, and here they are hiding in holes in the ground, in caves, in the rocks. Fortunately, there are lots of caves over there uh, to hide in. But living in a cave isn't much fun, I would suspect. God had miraculously delivered them. I mean, this is the contrast. God had miraculously delivered them from slavery, where they had been for hundreds of years. And God not only had crushed a mighty power in order to do this, but God had brought them to the land of Canaan. And, and God had defeated the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan, which were a, a warring nation. And then God had enabled them to defeat the various confederacies, the southern and northern confederacy of the Canaanites, and, and to crush a, a people who were warlike, who had been prepared for war, who had standing armies. Israel was not a warlike people. And God had given them the victory, and then God had given them a turnkey land. Here it is, folks. The fields are plowed, the orchards are in, the vineyards are in, the cities are built. Just walk in, take over. You know, clean out the vermin and clean out the cult centers and take it over. And then God said, every man will dwell in the shadow of his own vine in peace and security. But of course, that was contingent. And God had made that so clear throughout the days of Moses. He repeatedly made it clear that their peace and security was contingent upon their faith and obedience. To give thanks and to worship the God who had given this all to them. It's easy for us to, I suppose, point fingers at them and to say, how could they not thank God who had done all this for them? But when we look at the mirror, we have to admit that many times we don't thank God for what he has done for us. In fact, we complain and say, Why haven't you done more? You know? I think that's human nature. However, they had turned their backs upon the very God who had delivered them and given them all this. And what did they choose to serve? They choose, chose to serve these heinous gods that were worshipped by the surrounding Canaanites. And what was the result? Subhuman existence. If this isn't a graphic picture, of what it means to turn our backs on the Lord and chase after the things of the world. I don't know what else is, because what is the ultimate result? It's to live a subhuman existence. And we see that so much, not only in this country, but around the world. People who are locked into drugs and alcohol and living in the streets, or maybe not living in the streets, but living a horrible life. Solomon would later uh, summarize what it meant, just very foundationally what it meant. To be a person of true faith and understanding in you know this passage Let me just read the uh, two verses at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes after Solomon goes through all of of his Soul searching through the book of Ecclesiastes. He comes to the end and he says the conclusion when all has been heard is The conclusion is fear God and keep his commandments it all boils down to that Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. It all boils down, whatever life is all about, it all boils down to the essential attitude that must be had by all human beings. And that is to fear the Lord and obey Him. To fear the Lord and obey Him. I mean, it's so simple, but hard. Trust and obey, trust and obey. Without this attitude, and, and you and I know this just by listening to the lives of the people and reading about the lives of the people in the world today, without this attitude, without this knowledge, people don't have anything. They have nothing. I, I mean, you, you read about men like uh, Ferdinand Marcos and all that he had and all of his power and his wife with all of her shoes, and, and, and you, you read about... Um, Um, Sukarno and then Suharto and how they ripped off Indonesia sequentially. And you read about all this and what do they really have? What do they really have? They have nothing. They have nothing. Solomon put it so aptly in the Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 where he said the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding no knowledge of the Holy One, you have no understanding. If we don't begin with the fear of the Lord, we do not have wisdom. And and that's why, you know, you dealing in an academic setting such as I do, I don't really fear the fact that we have all these universities out here with all these big name professors and uh, they're teaching things that are often contrary to what we teach. Because you see, they don't begin with the fear of the Lord. And therefore, they don't have wisdom. They're just teaching facts, maybe, or mostly opinions, which are irrelevant. Philosophies that are wrong, that are of the evil one. A- and so, we have, if we don't begin with the fear of the Lord, it's, it's like dealing with the whole concept of evolution. If evolution is approached from the standpoint of, of uh, you know, it's a, it's a mechanistic, fortuitous uh, thing, then there is obviously no fear of the, of the Lord there, of, of God, and, and therefore it's total folly, it's total foolishness. It's, of course, an attempt simply to not have to deal with the God of the universe. Well, the Israelites had, you know, in their land, every time they got in trouble, God rescued them, and so they were living in prosperity again, and so they decided they were self-sufficient. They didn't need the Lord, so what did they do? They played the harlot with the gods of the Amorites all over again. You know, it's just deja vu. Boo, 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 you know. It just keeps happening over and over again. Why? Because these gods appeal to the flesh. We, we just had an excellent uh, spiritual emphasis week a week ago at the college, and um, the, the man who spoke emphasized the fact that we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But really, the world and the devil are outside us, and, and they're not the problem. It's the flesh. The flesh is the real problem because we drag it around everywhere we go. And it's constantly drawing us to do things that are opposite to what God wants us to do. And so our real ultimate final struggle is with the flesh. And, you know, the world and the devil can kind of excite the flesh and and intimidate the flesh, but that's what we're dealing with. And that's what Israel was attracted to, these worldly fleshly gods and goddesses that appeal to the flesh they were sensual. They were colorful. You had the odors that went along with all the incense. You had you know, the sexual perversion that went along with all this stuff. But God, in his love and in his mercy, did not forsake his people. But he brought his heavy hand of discipline upon them. <laughs> and, and, of course, God becomes the perfect example of a heavenly father. We, as fathers, at sometimes come to the place where we think, if you do that again, you're dead, you know, <laughs> do we say to our child. We don't really mean that. Well, sometimes I'm afraid it's happened. But, uh, but God is so patient and so merciful in spite of the flagrant disobedience of His people. Not, not just ignorant disobedience, flagrant disobedience. So what was the heavy hand that God brought on them? The Midianites and the cousins of the Midianites, the Amalekites, who were also related to Israel. God used these to awaken Israel to their absolutely desperate need of Him. Again, we have a powerful lesson, and it keeps being underscored for us throughout Scripture. And that is, God is more concerned with the spiritual welfare of His people than He is with their physical welfare. And the obvious reason for that is that physical life is transitory, Whereas spiritual are, life is eternal. We we have the little phrase that we often use that uh, only one life will soon be passed. Uh, Only what's done for Christ will last. And sometimes we flippantly put that out, but we don't live as if that were really true. You know, we really often don't. I, I think it's true for most of us. I know it's been for me from time to time. That we have a tendency, for example, to pray more about our physical condition than we do our spiritual condition. It's almost like we take our spiritual condition for granted. Well, I'm born again, you know, so. And so what we're praying for is our kidney stones or our teeth or our whatever, you know, is going on. And that's what, you know, I've been battling with those two lately. But, you know, is that uh, what our focus should be? I don't think so. Because these bodies are going to drop away one of these days anyway. And good riddance far as I'm concerned, with mine anyway. But uh, our spirit lives forever. And so that needs to be the focus. And God has promised to us, and and we know this passage so well, but I don't think it ever hurts us to be reminded again from Matthew chapter 6, that if we take care of our spiritual life before God, He will take care of everything else. In the sixth chapter of Matthew, at the end verse 31 the Lord says do not be anxious then saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe, our, clothe ourselves for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things which doesn't mean we shouldn't pray if we have a need you know it's script that the Lord's Prayer says give us this day our daily bread it's a request but we're not to be anxious and focus on these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things—what things? What, things, what shall we shall drink, and what we shall eat, and with what we will clothe ourselves—will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, and we often empathize with that little phrase. Seems like. And it seems like we don't get everything done one day. It kind of piles up with the problems of the next day <laughs> and snowballs after a while. It seems like to be the situation so much of the time. Notice how this fits. Israel is hiding in caves. Who are they having more trouble with? People related to them than, at this time at least, people not related to them. Well, for some reason, and as Scripture does not explain, the Amalekites separated from the Edomites, the rest of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and became a separate people. But the issue is, how did Amalek treat Israel? And we've, we've noted this before. They perpetrated a cowardly attack upon Israel before Israel even reached Mount Sinai just after they had gotten out of the Red Sea that all that trauma and had marched through the wilderness there and before they got to mount sinai the amalekites attacked them and therefore they were put under god's curse let me read that again to uh, for us in uh, deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17 deuteronomy 25:17 remember what amalek did to you along the way when you came out of egypt how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear, when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. And they had not done that. They had not done that. What kind of people were the Amalekites? Would they confront Israel straight on and, and do battle with them? No. They'd attack the stragglers, pick off the weak ones hanging out behind. Uh, cowardly activity. And God ordered Israel to deal with them. Well, this would eventually happen. Israel will eventually deal with the Amalekites. But you know, it'll be another hundred years after this time we're talking about right now. And it will be done at the hands. And just how these things all interweave is just amazing. It'll be done at the hands. Of, of Israel's first king, Saul. Let me just read it to you from 1 Samuel, chapter 15. First Samuel, chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself up against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so the story goes, Saul puts together this huge army and he deals with Amalek. But how does that play out? Well, it plays out with the fact that eventually Saul comes trotting back and he has kept the best of the animals, and he has not killed the king of the Amalekites. And so Samuel confronts him and says, what have you done? Oh, I, I did what I'm supposed to do. Hmm. <laughs> well, the people made me keep the animals. And so Samuel says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And he says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. See how it all weaves together. Human nature doesn't change. God is immutable. Human nature seems to be immutable. And it's only God that can make human nature mutable. (laughs) It's only the immutable God that can change us from our penchant to do wrong to a penchant for obedience, to love God and to do what he wants us to do. And that does not happen by accident. It happens by concerted choice. It happens by commitment to obedience and commitment to the word, so we know what it is God wants us to do and how he wants to shape us. And that's what Israel is learning the hard way. That's what Saul learned the hard way. So here come the Amalekites, (coughs) along with the Midianites. And because Israel had not done what they were supposed to do before now with the Amalekites, here the Amalekites are, along with the Midianites. Well, in in the third verse of this chapter, um, we read, well, let me read the third verse of Judges 6. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. (laughs) So what did the Midianites and the Amalekites do? Well, they did what the typical nomads did, and that is they waited till everything was ready, and then they moved in. When the harvest (coughs) was, was ready, they moved in. The Israelites planted it, the Israelites raised it, the Israelites got it ready to harvest, and then the Midianites and Amalekites came in and took it all from them. So they worked hard in order to produce the fruit of the land and it was harvested by their enemies. And they were left with nothing, the gleanings at very best. Because unfortunately, the Midianites and the Amalekites who came in, uh, uh, that's what this verse is in in effect saying. In fact, it does say that a little bit further down in verse 5. They would come in like locusts. They were like a plague of locusts, sweeping in over the land. And I've not lived through a plague of locusts, although I've had seen plenty of grasshoppers in my life, my life. But I've seen you know the scenes that you probably have seen too where they're showing the grasshoppers coming in and they're so thick, they almost make the sky black. And uh, they eat everything, they eat everything. That's edible anyway, vegetable things. And so here, here are the Midianites, the Amalekites, they're really coming in like a plague of grasshoppers, eating everything they want and then destroying the rest and taking whatever animals the Israelites uh, had around that they could find. The Israelites had to hide some of their animals in order to have any left over at all. But the problem was there was no food for them to eat and no food for their animals to eat because the Midianites and the Amalekites would come and plant their tents, their camps right in the middle of the Israelite fields and eat everything and let their animals uh, graze off everything. Said their camels were innumerable. And of course they had ox and donkeys and (laughs) cattle and everything also. So all these animals grazing (laughs) away, eating what the Israelites had grown. And so when they finally left, the land was stripped. There was nothing left for man or for animal. God had told him this would happen. God had made it abundantly clear. Let me read a couple of verses from the 28th chapter of Numbers. In Numbers 28, you have a record of the consequences of disobedience, and God lists uh, quite a few things there. But in verse 49, I mean, God has absolutely predicted this moment, not this moment only, but this moment at least, in Deuteronomy 28:49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, which is a, you know, th- that's a euphemism. It doesn't really mean from the other end of the earth, like from China or someplace, it just means from far away. As the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you do not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who shall have no respect for the old nor show, f- show favor to the young. Moreover, It shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed. Who also leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. And that's exactly what's happening to Israel. They're dying out because they're starving at the hands of the Malachites and the Midianites who are living like kings, living off their own herds. And and then when when it's time for harvest, just moving in and and eating all the Israelites' food. I mean, you know, it's plenty time. We move in and, and steal everything that the Israelites have produced. It's almost like having slave labor. They're growing it, you're eating it and not paying for it. To me, what makes this so profound is that it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. When we walk with God, we have abundance and we have blessing. But when we turn our backs on God and walk in the flesh, we have barrenness and poverty of soul. As in previous accounts, the Israelites finally became desperate enough to cry out to the Lord. How is it they forget God until things are really, really bad? Then they suddenly remember God. How convenient. But there's really nothing like desperate times to bring us to our knees before God. That's why he allows desperate times. Because sometimes we forget him. In the sense that we're not really living for his plan and his purpose. In the sixth chapter, we read on, sixth chapter of Judges, we read on these words beginning at verse 7. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on the account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel It was I who brought you up from Egypt, and brought you out from the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you into their hands. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Israel has become the proverbial soldier in the foxhole with the mortar shells raining around, the bullets whizzing overhead, (laughs) saying, it was was the other night uh, they were... I forget who, what the what the context was, but this man was saying that he ended up on the beaches at Normandy, and he said, "I'm 17 years old. What am I doing here?" <laughs> he says, "I had a protected factory job back home in in war industry. I didn't have to be here." <laughs> he says, "I'm on the beach, and everything is falling around me, and bullets are flying around me. What am I doing here?" Well, Israel cried out to the very God they had forsaken. What are we doing here, Lord? Because they had nowhere else to turn. The gods of the Amorites weren't doing them any good. They got to chop themselves and burn incense and done whatever they wanted to from from then to the day they died. And the gods of the Amorites wouldn't have done a thing for them because, as we know, they're they're not gods. God, in his patient mercy, will often back the rebel into the corner where the rebel learns there's nowhere else to turn. That's... Our hope, and that's our prayer, for anyone that you know in your life who is a rebel, be it a family member or a friend or a neighbor or whoever it might be, that's the hope we have. We pray, we pray, we pray. God put him in a corner where they have nowhere else to turn but to you. Unlike the previous instances of spiritual rebellion, this time God sent an unnamed prophet. Just think, this prophet's name is not given. He did the work of the Lord, where he came from, where he went, how he became a prophet. None of that is explained to us. Here's this man who for a moment is used by God to accomplish a particular thing. He comes out of nowhere, he goes into nowhere. Yet with God, he, he is, he's a man exalted, but not to us, at least not in terms of his name. But God sent this prophet to proclaim to Israel why they were in this distress. Why are we here, Lord? Why are we in these holes? Well, you asked. I will tell you. You're in these holes because you have forgotten the God who did all these things for you. And look what the the prophet tells them. It was I, he says of God, who brought you up from Egypt, brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. (laughs) I did the impossible for you. I, I did what you couldn't have done if you had a million years to do it. I picked you up out of of the morass of slavery, and I brought you miraculously to this land and gave it to you, all prepared, as if your ancestors had been living here for hundreds of years, plowing the land, planting the fields, planting the vineyards, planting the orchards, building the cities. It's as if that had been happening, but it hadn't been happening, you have been in slavery. So I gave this all to you, and all I'm requiring of you is that you obey God, obey me, and don't chase after these Amorite gods, that's all. But then the prophet has to deliver That final phrase, but you have not obeyed me. That's why you're in the hole. That's why you're in the cave. That's why you're losing your crops and your animals. That's why you're living under oppression. God made it very clear to the people that they were in rebellion. He made it clear to them because they couldn't understand and repent Unless they knew for sure exactly the situation. We have to remember, some of these, this is the next generation. Were they properly taught? We don't know. You know, if they had done what God had said, where you're you're to um, hear, O Israel, you know, and you're to put, as it were, the word of God on the doorposts and on your gates and on your forehead and on your arm, if you really did that, were all these people, would they be like this? Probably not. One cannot repent unless one acknowledges that he has sinned. And deliverance can't come unless repentance comes first. So have, one has to acknowledge his sin, repent of his sin, then comes deliverance. And so God made that clear through the prophet to Israel. This is the sequence. You must acknowledge that you have sinned, you must repent of your sin, and then I will send a deliverer. And apparently they did this because as we move into the, to, uh, verse 11 immediately, God appears to Gideon. Immediately, God appears to Gideon. It isn't spelled out for us, but we have to believe because of the way God works. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. That's putting God in a box. But the way we see it clearly in Scripture, they must have repented for God to grant deliverance. And that is, of course, our great hope. Well, next week we'll look at uh, God appears to Gideon. And it's a theophany. It's a wonderful encounter. Gideon is one of the few men in history to to actually stand As it were, God is veiled in in the form of a human angelic form, but nevertheless, he speaks face to face to God.